I'm going to say something that's disagreeable, but uh, culturally, I think it's, it's true. Uh, there isn't a problem that can't be solved. Uh, there isn't a problem in the world that couldn't be solved by Amazon. Uh, how it usually goes is, oh, we need to get that. Okay, good, it has two-day shipping, and we punch the button, and uh, we get it in two days. Problem solved. Uh, we have been sort of inoculated into this way of thinking that there's a problem that, if there's a problem presented, there's usually a possession or something that we can acquire that will solve the issue. I was wrestling with something that was said to me a very long time ago. Uh, it was from a ministry mentor, and uh, the phrase was that there's not a problem in the church that can't be solved by evangelism. Not a problem in the church that couldn't be solved by evangelism. And it, and it had me thinking. It's like, is that, is that statement true? And for the most part, I believe it actually is true. In the sense that if there's a church that is dying, quite literally dying, one that is doing more funerals than it is baptisms, then evangelism is an excellent answer to that conundrum. That we would reach the lost and share Christ with others. In a church that is inwardly focused and fighting and and bickering, evangelism is a great response to the sort of infighting that can happen in a church where there are two fractions going at it to turn attention outwardly and saying, you know, who is it that we need to be reaching? Evangelism offers a, a great response to so many problems in the church. But what I have found to be more true, more accurate, and what I think the book of Hebrews is about, and the book of Hebrews we've been studying for several weeks, and we're in the heart of it, is that there is an argument that the preacher is actually making on behalf of his church family. And what he is saying is, is that every problem that we face as a church can be solved through a high Christology. I know you've never probably heard the word Christology before, but if you know your, uh, your Latin or whatever, it's the study of Christ. It's the study of who Jesus is. And it's having a high view of Jesus, that every problem that we face in the church can be solved through a high view of who Jesus Christ is, a high view of his resurrection, a high view of his incarnation, of his life here with us, a high view of who he is right now in this world. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself in our, in our text and the things that we're facing uh, as a church, but what I want us to know, very true and out, out front, is that the thing that will solve the problems of the church is always turning to who Christ is and his identity and what he has done and what he's doing now in your life and changing your heart and changing our focus. If the church does not find Christ elevated and lifted up, then it's hardly even a church. What makes us a church is who we believe Jesus Christ to be. What shapes your everyday moment of your attention and your focus and how you care for your neighbor and how you care for your family, how you walk down the street is shaped by your view of who Jesus Christ is as Lord and Savior. So I'd like to go back to my ministry mentor and friend and say, well, I agree with you. Evangelism can solve an awful lot of problems in the church. But the driving force of that 
is that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He has redeemed you and saved you. In the Hebrews Preacher, we're going to look at some of the problems facing the church, and I want you to see how Christology, how this view of who Jesus is, begins to answer the problems of everything they're facing. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds. Help us to see your love through the pages of Scripture, through the lives that we live, and through our love for one another. Let us be changed and transformed by you. Open our hearts and our minds now, Lord, that as we endure suffering, as we face persecution, as we walk together as a church, Lord, we pray that you would stir in our hearts memories of your faithfulness and your kindness and your mercy to us. Lord, that we would cling to the inheritance that we have in heaven. Lord, knowing that you are with us and you love us. Open our hearts now, Lord. Bring conviction and challenge and give us, Lord, a sense of your presence and your love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And last week's sermon, what, uh, what the Hebrews preacher laid out for us was, and we had a little, uh, we had, we had some props on stage, and we looked at the tabernacle, and we walked through what God was doing with Jesus Christ. And you remember the tabernacle had the curtains, and Jesus goes through the curtains, and he enters into the most holy of places, and he offers a sacrifice of sins once and for all. And Jesus is there advocating for you, offering forgiveness and grace and love, and you are welcomed into the family of God. Well, he takes that scene, and then he follows it with this sort of rebuke and challenge. And we start getting a sense of something is going on, and we aren't 100% certain. There's a problem with the book of Hebrews. One, we don't know exactly who it was written to, and we also don't know exactly who wrote it. So a lot of it is just context. You're just trying to figure out something is happening. And one thing is very clear. There are people who are walking away from the faith. There are people who are sort of washing their hands with the whole Jesus thing. And so he's facing a very real problem. And so his solution is, is if you wash your hands of Christ, there's nothing left for you. And he says it right there in 1026. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. What else is there for you to reconcile your relationship with God if you don't have Jesus? Like, you have to have him. You can't go back to the old system. I showed you how the old system is done, and Jesus made it obsolete. The one thing that you have as a believer is that Jesus Christ has offered forgiveness for your sins. So if you go on sinning and you forget this, if you forget everything that he sort of laid out up to this point, there's not much for you. And I know that we hear that and it's like, holy... I got a DM what you said. I'll set that over there. That freaked me out. It said you couldn't hear what I said, so I'll just say it again. That if we turn... All right, no more Siri for me. Okay. Maybe that's, I should have used Siri as my opening. There's no problem that Siri can't fix. I'm sorry. Good grief. Okay, what was I saying? All right, Jesus offers us the sacrifice, and, and he's presenting to the church family. We see these people falling away, and we need to know abundantly clear that 
there's no other options. Christ is it, and he's offered sacrifice once and for all. We have a life with him and through him. He is the one that we draw near to God with. In verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So he alludes back to the Old Testament. He's going to go back to the Old, and he's saying, this was the consequence if you rejected the law of Moses, if you reject the Old Testament. The consequences were that you would be, um, uh, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. There was a consequence of death. He says, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated an, as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who ha has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. This is not about you. You have not trampled the Son of God. You're here this morning. You love him. You've taken part in the communion. This is about people who have heard that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus has offered the sacrifice of sins. This is about those who reject and trample what is pure and good and holy and say that Jesus is not Lord, that Jesus has not saved, that you are condemned to, no matter what, or there is no hope and Jesus isn't Lord. This is the trampling of the Son of God. And he's, if you circle back, he's saying, if you do that, where do you get forgiveness? Where is it for you in the Bible or in the scriptures or in another religion? Or There's no hope outside of Jesus. And I think you get that, but there's that tension. And we may even know people who have gone down this path and our heart breaks for them. And our heart wonders about them and what's next for them and our heart is fearful for them because we know that there is this sort of tension between them and God and all we want them to know is just how much Jesus loves them and cares for them we want them to know that Jesus is still forgiving them and the story of the prodigal son comes to heart and mind because there is always hope there's always hope that you can go down this path and you can turn and there is Christ there is his love there is the open hands of the father welcoming and saying come and believe trust in Jesus again but the preacher is seeing this problem in the church and maybe it's in the church maybe it's not maybe they're hearing about it we don't 100 percent know but there are people that he is fearful for you've trampled what is good and if you do that there's nothing for you this is it this is the whole ball game jesus's sacrifice once and for all to redeem you and save you and bring you into his family that's how you draw near to god do any of you all know another way? There's one way. There's one way, and it's through the Son, Jesus Christ, in which you are forgiven and have life in him. And so the preacher cares deeply. You know, I think we have a tendency to go to this as a sort of fear-mongering thing, but I think it is a heartfelt plea for those 
who are going to a path of destruction. He's standing on the edge and he's saying, don't go any further. You are entertaining ideas that are taking you away from Jesus as Lord and Savior. You are entertaining ideas that are taking you away from God and the only thing that's left for you is destruction. If you reject God, he will give you exactly what you want. He stands there pleading with you. I have entered into the most holy of holies that you would have life and forgiveness and love and renewal. Is that what you want today? Your stoic faces say to me, an abounding yes. <laughs> the, uh, that's 100% all in. Woo! Right? Right? Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished and tramples the Son of God? There's something going on and there's persecution. There's something happening. Because why else would you leave this? The consequences in the moment feel so strong and so difficult that it's leading people to make a decision. Right? They have been pushed along and so there's a sense of something that's happening in verse 32 remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated he calls them back to remember again we don't know 100% their context and we're just kind of Wondering, what was it that they faced? Their property was taken from them. Perhaps their families were separated. Maybe there was a Jewish family and a Christian family, and there was this ongoing tension in the family. There could have been Roman persecution, which there most certainly was. They were tired of being blamed for all of the problems that were happening in society. There would have been so many ongoing tensions that maybe the present tension was just kind of like, it's not worth it anymore. That the tension in the moment would be so great that they decide, you know, maybe being a part of this Jesus movement isn't what I want to be a part of because it's too difficult right now. It was really nice when we were all getting along, but we're not getting along anymore, and it's not really worth it. It's not worth the troubles. It's not worth the threats. It's not worth the persecution. It's not worth all of this. I was really excited to... um, to hear from a lot of the kids who came to, or who went to Lake James Camp this year. They, they learned about a missionary named Thomas, and he works for an organization called CRAM. Uh, it's Christians Reaching Asia Missions, Ministries, Missions. Thanks, Rylan. And they are reaching Asia, and one of the nations that they are reaching is North Korea. We don't know how many Christians are currently in North Korea, It's estimated to be in the thousands. The reasons why we don't know how many are there is because if you are found out to be a Christian, you are killed. Happening right now, 21st century, in our world, it's illegal to be a Christian in North Korea. It's the number one most dangerous place to be a Christian. They do a gesture. There are couples, there are married couples in North Korea where both the husband and wife are Christian and neither of them know it. 
and they are surprised to learn of one another being Christian because there comes a point where they share it with one another and they don't share it out of fear that one might report them to the authorities and that they would be killed. Own spouses, own households. So what they do, the kids were teaching me, what they do, and I'm, am I doing it right, Hosanna? That they would make this symbol to one another. And you can't quite tell. It, it's a finger heart. It's a gesture to show that they are Christians. This small, simple thing to communicate love. And a love for Christ and a love for them. Persecution, suffering, this tension. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this. And it's, uh, it's so hard because I don't, I, don't know that, I don't know that we're ready to face the pressure of persecution. I look at how much I complain in my own life about inconveniences and then I read in our text that they experience suffering, suffering together and they have their possessions taken from them. And I'm not sure that I have the skin to take that. I had one shining moment in my life where I lived this out. And I hesitate to tell the story because I, I'm the hero of the story. Um, but it is filled with my own embarrassment as well, so I think they counteract each other. Some of you will remember this story. For some of you, it's new. It was the day that a robber visited my garage. And I was uh, awakened from my slumber in the middle of the night, middle of a storm. Wendy jostles me, and she says, there's someone in the garage. I said, oh, honey, let me arise to the occasion and be your knight in shining armor. That's exactly how it went. And I went to the bathroom, and I could see down in towards the garage, and there was this gorillish figure, you know, that was going in and out of the garage, looking to uh, steal whatever was uh, my abundance of possessions in the garage. And my first thought was, I could probably get a jump on them if I go out of the window. <laughs> I didn't do that, praise God. So I went and I scurried downstairs and I started peering up and down, up and down, looking through the kitchen window and thinking, what are they doing? What are they taking? You know, and I was filled with all sorts of fear and, and I thought, okay, I got the golf club in the back. I could go and just whack them upside the head. You know, it was, it was this big person, you know. And uh, my sons came over, man, and I called 911. Officer Shively came, and by this time, the person had been done horsing around in the garage and went up uh, to up the street. And I thought, oh, they're going towards Gene's house. I'm really, you know, I was like, they got to come and get them, get this person. And so uh, they looked around the garage. Nothing was missing in the garage, and they didn't catch the perpetrator. And I come back here, and... I have been, I was processing all of this. You know me, I'm an outward processor, like I figure life out with you and I share all these things and I share that whole story. Eric Wagner was picking up and dropping off Gene Price and on the way home, 
Jean Price heard all of that story and she told Eric, she said, that robber in the garage, it was me. <laughs> so then I had to come back here and, you know, own up to my stupidity and think about all that. But my processing, my external processing, I was walking through that with you and I was going through the whole range of emotions where it's like someone was taking something from me, something was threatening my life. And I arrived at, and what I was trying to communicate with you all at that time was, is that whatever was worth taking wasn't worth taking their life. They could have whatever they wanted, you know, in the abundance of uh, cobwebs in my garage. They can have that. And uh, so in the midst of all that, I was trying to look like a hero, but really in the end, I just looked like an idiot. I was trying to kill my 85-year-old neighbor lady. Um, but... Uh, uh, and it's, you know, a pie in the face, and so I was trying to be my own hero, and obviously that doesn't work out. So, uh, but that story has always hung around with me, and, and, uh, and I love telling that story of my own embarrassment, and Jean always got a great kick out of it when I would tell her, call her my robbing neighbor lady. Um, she brought me cookies, I think, after that, and we were, all, we were squared away. But uh, anyways, this, it's this thing, though, this idea that we're going to talk about in a moment in the text that I think we need to arrive at as Christians. And that is, is recalling what possession, what inheritance we have in Christ. What is it that we have in Him that can't be taken away? If every problem that we face as a church can be solved through a high view of who Jesus is, then let's see it Come alive in the text here. Let's look at verse 32 again. Remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured in great conflict and full, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when, when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has, he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but, but my righteous one will, one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Does 34 come alive to you when you read that we joyfully accepted the confiscation of our property because we knew that you ourselves, we have inherited a better and lasting possession. In 1 Peter, he outlines that better and lasting possession as that you have received an eternal inheritance, one that doesn't perish, spoil, or fade. That the conviction of a Christian is that you can lose everything, and if you have Christ, you still have all that you need. It is the pressing issue of our time, not that we face the persecution of being executed, but that we face the persecution of assimilation. That there is nothing in my faith that actually needs to be persecuted. Because there's nothing that threatens the enemy. 
that we become so much like the culture, that we become so surrounded by our possessions, that we live not by the mantra that every problem that we face can be solved by Christ, but every problem that we face can be solved by Amazon. That can be solved by buying. That can be solved by buying and getting resources and money. And it can be a new home and a new car and a new life and a new... Millions and millions of dollars are being spent to make your faith so undistinguishable from your neighbor's. That we've just conformed our hearts and our lives to a way of living that there are no more remaining distinguishing marks of our faith. There's two kinds of persecution. Where they threaten your life, and the only way you can communicate that you're a follower of Jesus is by a simple hand gesture. Under the threat of your life. There's that persecution, and there's the persecution that happens every day that we sort of whittle away at our faith, and we sort of trail off, and before we know it, What makes us followers of Jesus? That our devotion and our commitments and our love for him just sort of go to the wayside. There's two kinds of persecution, and I just wonder what one's the one that's affecting you today. I know what one is for me. There was a, there was a sermon preached I preacher a long time ago it was at a passion conference and his name is john piper and you've probably heard of him and there was a sermon that changed the culture of an entire youth movement that he preached and maybe you've heard the sermon maybe you haven't it's okay i'm going to appropriate it today i've given credit and he stood in front of a group of young people and he read them a story out of reader's digest and reader's digest story told of a couple that retired early and they got a house on the beach and they ordered or and they spent their days collecting seashells collecting seashells and he used that illustration to say you know what is that what you want with your life to retire early live on the beach and collect seashells and the concluding part of his sermon and there's a I'm not doing it total justice but He presents it and he says, at the end of their lives, they are going to take before God and they are going to say, here God, look at all of the seashells that I've collected for you. Is that what you want for your life? That was the challenge. I look at my life and when I heard that message and I thought, I look at my basement, I look at my closets, I look at the things that I've collected, I look at the garage that I can't get anybody now to go in and take anything out of. <laughs> is this what my life is? What, what am I going to present to God as what I have done for him? What am I going to present to God is my faith and what I've trusted in? There are warnings throughout Scripture, dear children, Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In the abundances of life and sur- surrounding ourselves with safety, surrounding ourselves with comfort, surrounding ourselves with the complete absence of suffering and difficulty. The pages of Scripture pour out that difficulty and suffering is all about the perseverance and endurance of our faith. 
and the Hebrews preacher, he looks at his congregation and he says to them, we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who cower in fear. We are not those who go quietly into the night. We are not those who shrink back, but we are those who persevere. We are those who have courage. We are those who confess Jesus as Lord. We are those who go out into the world and proclaim that Christ Jesus has redeemed and saved, and I am new, and I am loved, and I am a part of him. Life doesn't consist of all of these things external things it consists of one thing a high view of who jesus is because a high view of who he is shapes every aspect of your life how you retire if you retire how you treat your neighbor how you treat your spouse how you raise your children how your children are taught to love the lord how they interact in school how you treat your school teacher this year how you treat the teacher of your children this year, how you live as a grandparent every day, loving and praying for your children. Your view of Jesus shapes every aspect of your life, and if it's not high enough, that's when we shrink back. So I'll say to you one simple question. What is your Christology? What is your view of Jesus? And if you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord and given your life to him in baptism and walking in a new life with him, I'd invite you to do that today. And if you have done so, I would encourage you to remember your confession and remember your baptism. Remember what you were taught about him and his love for you. Remember Christ and lift him up because a high view of Jesus changes everything about your life so that no matter what we face and no matter what pressures and no matter what difficulty, no matter what suffering, no matter what we are going through, our why is Jesus Christ as Lord. And he is victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. They can take it all away, even your life. And you still have life in him. That's the victorious message of the cross and the life you have in him. When you go off to college, when you start a new job, when you care for those around you, when you learn new kids' names, when you love and serve and care for your grandkids, when you minister in a nursing home, wherever you go and whatever you do, may you do it for the Lord. May what you live for be something that lasts forever an eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for how you care for us each day and walk with us. We have a life in you. And then I ask God now that you would stir in us a faith that can endure suffering. Call on us an encouragement, Lord, through your spirit, that we would persevere that we wouldn't shrink back, that we wouldn't cower in fear of what is next and the things happening in the world. Lord, help us to live with a certain conviction of Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. Lord, that he would be the King we live for, 
that he would be the Lord in whom we serve, the Savior in whom we trust, that there's nothing outside of him to redeem and save and draw us near to you. It is through Jesus that we draw near. And God, may we have a faith that can endure suffering. And on the other side of it, that it would be purified and proved genuine and true. That we would have joy even in our sorrow. That we would have peace even in the midst of difficulty. Knowing that everything can be taken away, but the kingdom of God is one that cannot be shaken. We have life in you. We praise you, Lord, and we open our hearts to you now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.